systematic rule breaking, a culture of cover-ups and disrespect towards lower paid staff. The Sue Gray report exposes the rot at the heart of Downing Street. Boris Johnson still thinks it's all somebody else's problem. I'll be breaking down the contents of this long-awaited report on a dramatic day in British politics with Dahlia Gabriel. How are you doing, Dahlia? I'm doing all right. When I've heard some of the contents of, of this report, which we're going to talk about a little bit later today. But yeah, I'm all right. I'm in a little uh, countryside getaway at the moment, which is nice. <laughs> we're not going to talk about the report later, but we're getting straight into the report. The report is actually dominating most of the show tonight. We're also going to talk about uh, a Laura Koonsberg documentary yesterday on Partygate and some of the testimony that she heard from people who are speaking anonymously. They've got actors speaking their voices. It all looks a bit sort of like a, an investigation into a terrorist sect, but that's what British politics has, has, has become now. We've waited five months for it, but the Sue Gray report has finally been released in full, and it's been a tough day for Boris Johnson. Downing Street under him has been a cesspit full of arrogant, entitled narcissists. You saw what was going on. You participated in what was going on. You made the rules as Prime Minister. So it does beg the question, are you a liar? Will the Prime Minister now take the opportunity and resign? Did you never for a moment during the past five months or even this morning when that report landed on your desk and you read it blow by blow, think about resigning? How on earth does he sleep at night with so much blood on his filthy, privileged hands? So what's in the report that's got everyone quite so het up? Well, in one sense, it just confirms what we already knew. There was industrial-scale rule-breaking in Downing Street. But it also contains a number of new details, including texts, emails, and personal testimony that give colour to the outright disrespect that has been running through Britain's heart of power. Let's take you through the key bits. One of the first events addressed took place on the 20th of May 2020. So in the first and strictest lockdown, this is the one which was organised by Martin Reynolds. That's Johnson's personal private secretary. In the report, Sue Gray includes his invitation email, which reads, Hi all, after what has been an incredibly busy period, we thought it would be nice to make the most of this lovely weather and have some socially distanced drinks in the garden this evening. Please join us from 6pm and bring your own booze, Martin. Now, we had seen um, that email before that had already been leaked. What Sue Gray adds is this detail afterwards. The email invitation was sent to a number of group distribution lists, as well as individuals comprising in total around 200 staff across number 10 Downing Street. The invitation was also sent to special advisors in the Chancellor's office and a member of staff in the number 10 COVID-19 coordination unit. Martin Reynolds also sent a separate email invitation to other senior officials. Now, that is a lot of invitees. We've got over 200 people. And again, remember, this is when any gathering, not, quote, this is what it was in law, essential for work purposes was illegal. 200 people. If it's not essential for work purposes, it's illegal. Now, a theme running throughout the report is that officials seem to realize that what they were doing was wrong at the time. So before that party, the email invitation for which I've just shown you, an advisor messaged Reynolds saying, drinks this evening is a lovely idea. So I've shared with the ENV team who are in the office just to flag that the press conference will probably be finishing around that time. So helpful if people can be mindful that as speakers and cameras are leaving, not walking around waving bottles of wine. Martin Reynolds replied, will do my best. So you can see that they know they don't want people to see what they're doing. So they know it's wrong. At a later date, Martin Reynolds would refer back to the event saying of another controversy, best of luck, a complete non-story. So that's the, the other controversy, but better than them focusing on our drinks in brackets, which we seem to have got away with. So as we'll show you later, Boris Johnson stands up and says, Pe people definitely didn't know they were breaking the rules. It was all unintended. They're celebrating that they got away with it until now, of course. More evidence top officials knew they were breaking rules is provided by this conversation in June between Martin Reynolds again and then Downing Street comms chief Lee Kane. So again, this is about another event. Number 10 official ones leaving drinks next week. Can we discuss handling? That's from Martin Reynolds. Lee Kane, so head of press replies, yes, not sure how we do it, but want to do something. Martin Reynolds, 
Is it safer to do a larger event indoors, but with some people carrying on outside afterwards? Lee Kane says, I'm not sure it works at all, to be honest, which would be a shame. I don't see how we can have some kind of party, though. And then Martin Reynolds, shocked. Remember, principal private secretary, important guy. So you're saying nothing for number 10 officials. So Lee Kane says, I think it's your decision, my friend, not mine. But it obviously comes with a rather substantial comms risk. And you'll see that again and again and again in this, which is they're very, very concerned about comms risks, not particularly concerned about the morality of breaking the rules, which they are setting for other people. Reynolds, as is a running theme also, went ahead with the drinks. And in the course of organizing them, an official said this to him in an email. So, hi, Martin and Stuart would like to do speeches tomorrow when we have your drinks, which aren't drinks. So that would have been an email which Martin was CC'd in because clearly it's not directly to him. It's worth saying those drinks definitely were drinks. So Sue Gray reports of this event. The event lasted for a number of hours. There was excessive alcohol consumption by some individuals. One individual was sick. There was a minor altercation between two other individuals. This is all in the course of of the first lockdown. This is all while gatherings of more than two people for the rest of us were completely banned. They were getting plastered. They were throwing up. They were getting into physical altercations. And this, of course, was all while we were being told people would die if we bent the rules. So people in Downing Street were drawing up these posters. Boris Johnson would have signed them off. Martin Reynolds would have seen this. Lee Kane definitely would have seen this because he was head of press. And they all knew that these parties were going on where people were getting so pissed, they threw up and got into altercations with their colleagues, all while knowing they wanted to hide this from the press because they knew it was wrong. Now, Boris Johnson, we're obviously very interested in how he is personally involved here. He doesn't seem to have attended that particular leaving do I just described to you. One he did attend, though, was for Lee Kane. That took place in November 2020, when indoor gatherings were once again banned unless necessary for work purposes. And the reason we know Boris Johnson was at this one is because they have there are photographs. They were printed in the Sue Gray report. People are blurred out apart from the most senior officials. So we don't know exactly who's there, but we can see Boris Johnson with booze in hand, empty bottles of wine strewn across the table. And heavy drinking, it is worth noting, is another running theme in this report. And it seems to have been incredibly common in Downing Street. You might remember this quiz from December 2020 of that event, Sue Gray reports. Some staff drank alcohol. A number 10 official sent a message on internal number 10 systems referring to drunkenness and advising staff to leave number 10 via the back exit. The number 10 official informed the investigation team that they did this in order to avoid staff being photographed by the press outside. Again, they're getting pissed and they're hiding it from the press because they know it's wrong. And that willingness to hide wrongdoing, it's everywhere here. It is systematic. Now, Gray writes on December the 3rd um, that an email was sent um, to the Downing Street press office inviting them to a wine and cheese evening. This is one of the bits of the report that stands out to me most. Two weeks later, that invitation was reissued. Only now, instead of a wine and cheese evening, the title was changed to end of year meeting with wine and cheese. Now, that is incredibly on the nose. (laughs) They know what to call these events and what not to call them. And you might not be surprised to know that despite the change of name of this event, the nature of this event had not transformed. It was not a meeting with wine and cheese. So of this event, again, this is December 2020, Sue Gray writes, At approximately 7.45 that evening, a panic alarm button was accidentally triggered by a member of staff. The custodians on duty responded. Custodians will keep coming up there. That's the name for security at Downing Street, as did one of the police officers on number 10 door duty. They observed a large number of people in the area outside the main press office and one individual giving a speech. Inside the press office, a further 15 to 20 people were present. Interesting there, we've got a metropolitan police officer who saw what was going on and didn't seem to think much of it. There was food and alcohol available, which had been bought and brought in by staff. Some members of staff drank excessively. The event was crowded and noisy, such that some people working elsewhere in the number 10 building that evening heard significant levels of noise coming from what they characterized as a party in the press office. A cleaner who attended the room the next morning noted that there had been red wine spilled on one wall 
and on a number of boxes of photocopier paper. Now, I wonder if that was, it's not said explicitly in the Sue Gray report, but I wonder if that's the party and that Allegra Stratton was referring to in that fake press conference when she can't justify it. And they're joking, oh, you mean the, the meeting with wine and cheese? So we can see that potentially what she was alluding to there is that originally that was called wine and cheese evening, then gets called evening meeting with wine and cheese, where people are incredibly pissed. And people are leaving red wine strewn all over the place, which cleaners have to come and, and sort out in the morning. And this again is another of the big themes of this report. Lower paid workers in Downing Street being left to clean up the mess of well-paid civil servants who were making the rules. And we discovered other things about the treatment of lower paid staff. So Gray reports, and this is in her conclusions, I found that some staff had witnessed or been subjected to behaviours at work which they had felt concerned about but at times felt unable to raise properly. I was made aware of multiple examples of a lack of respect and poor treatment of security and cleaning staff. She says this was unacceptable, as is obvious to anyone remotely normal. Now, this is all incredibly damning. You've got systematic rule breaking. You've got systematic, it seems, knowledge that rules are being broken and habitual covering up. So it seems to be the case that people in Downing Street knew if you're pissed, someone's going to try and shimmy you out the back door because they don't want the press to see. You've got people changing the names of events to make them sound less like they are rule breaking, even though it seems everyone knew that rules were going to be broken. And then when they did occur, <laughs> it, it was exactly the kind of event that should not have been going on during a lockdown and should not have been going on because the rules said it should not have been going on. They were writing the rules. You know, this is all appalling and especially to add insult to injury, how they treated lower paid staff in Downing Street, which I think is really an, an analogy for how they treated the rest of us, how they treated the rest of Britain, which was with complete disregard and disrespect. So to this damning report, these damning revelations, how would Boris Johnson respond? Mr. Speaker, I'm trying to set out the context not to, uh, not to, to, to mitigate or uh, to absolve myself in any way. Uh, the exemption under which they were present uh, in Downing Street uh, includes those circumstances where officials and advisers were leaving the government. And uh, it was uh, appropriate to recognise them, to thank them for the work that they've done. Let me, let me come to that, Mr. Speaker. I briefly attended such gatherings to thank them for their service, which I believe is one of the essential duties of leadership and particularly important, and particularly important when people need to feel that their contributions have been appreciated and to keep morale as high as possible. I'm trying to explain the reasons I was there, Mr. Speaker. And it's clear from what uh, Sue Gray has had to say that some of these gatherings then went on far longer than was necessary. And they were clearly in breach of the rules and they fell foul of the rules. I have to tell the House, because the House will need to, to know this, and again, this is not to mitigate or to extenuate, I had no knowledge of those subsequent proceedings because I simply wasn't there. And I have been as surprised and disappointed as anyone else in this House as the revelations have unfolded, and frankly, Mr. Speaker, I have been appalled by some of the behaviour, particularly in the treatment of the security and the cleaning staff. And I would like to apologise to those members of staff. And I expect anyone who behaved in that way to apologise to them as well. And I'm happy to set on the record now that when I said, I came to this house and said in all sincerity that the rules and guidance had been followed uh, at all times, it was what I believed to be true. It was certainly the case when I was present at gatherings to wish staff farewell, and the house will note that my attendance at these moments, brief as it was, has not been found to be outside the rules. But clearly this was not the case for some of those gatherings after I had left and at other gatherings when I was not even in the building. So he's surprised, he's shocked, and he's appalled that all these things were going on in his office, which by all accounts he tacitly approved. We're going to look at some of the, the testimony given to Laura Koonsberg on, on that front in a moment. 
But I think you can see if this was so systematic, he clearly knew. And he was at many of these events. And I'm not sure why he suggests they only became illegal after he left them. Because I've, I've talked to you about what happened on the 20th of May. You had that garden party, over 200 people, in fact, invited by Boris Johnson's principal private secretary, clearly against the law. He's there for half an hour. I can't see how it only became illegal after he left, because it was clearly illegal from the moment that was organized, from the moment that began, that was illegal at that point in time. Now he's saying, oh, I've been cleared of this, et cetera, et cetera. He hasn't been cleared by the two Gray report of it. She says specifically, it's not my job to say when rules have been broken and when they haven't. What she does, which I think is you know, reasonably effective, she sort of lays out what were the rules at this time, what happened. Now me reading that, comparing the rules at the time to what happened, it looks especially on the 20th of May and on a number of other occasions that Boris Johnson did break the rules. Now, why the Met didn't find that, I can't say. We've talked a lot on this show about how illogical the Metropolitan Police's approach to this investigation has been, as it is to so many investigations that they are tasked with. But that, to me, I mean, Dahlia, it seems like he has not learned anything. This is nothing to do with him. This is what happened after he left. He's as shocked as the rest of us. I mean, he hasn't really changed his tune one iota since, well, I mean, since, since this, this whole controversy started in December. He's clearly not shocked and appalled. I think he is somewhat confused that, or rattled at least, by the fact that what he has considered so far to be a very routine part of the political career that he and those like him can expect, that now it's something that he is struggling to wriggle out of, you know, that he's kind of been caught red-handed in what he had thought had been, you know, a routine part of his career, which is to essentially hold himself to a fundamentally different standard to the one that he holds everyone else to. So is he probably confused? Yes. Is he maybe annoyed? Perhaps. But appalled? No. Because according to his logic, uh, and the logic that he has lived by his entire life, and indeed, more importantly, the logic of the part of British society that he and other members of our government are part of. According to that logic, he did nothing wrong. And it's such, and when I talk about that internal logic, it really is summarized in that incredibly powerful image of parliament cleaners who are paid £11 an hour, which is a quarter of the standard hourly salary of an MP, who put their families at risk, who put their lives on the line every day in the height of COVID, cleaning up the vomit of these drunk people. Um, like how many of those workers, I would like to know the data on how many of those workers contracted COVID, how many of them passed COVID onto their loved ones. These, these are people that wouldn't have had access to the same kind of all hands on deck healthcare that Boris Johnson had when he was hospitalized with COVID. And as the daughter of, of two healthcare workers, of two key workers who worked throughout the pandemic, every single day that they left the house was scary. It was terrifying and it continues to be. Every day felt really unfair. But it felt like, okay, it's one thing to believe that you are having to take this risk or the people that you love are having to take this risk because people need their food or their groceries delivered or because people need healthcare or because people need to have medication delivered. It's one thing to kind of, you can suck it up for that kind of reason. But the idea of you having to put yourself on the line and your loved ones at risk so that a group of ex-Etonians can essentially have a good old laugh about pulling one over on the public and get drunk without having to worry about cleaning up after themselves. That is unforgivable. That is truly unforgivable. And whilst I think it's really good that Sue Gray highlighted that in the report, it's important to highlight that like this isn't going to be solved by just, you know, making a better reporting mechanism. This isn't a bureaucratic solution. This is a fundamental power issue where members of parliament, the civil service, etc., essentially see this kind of power trip as part of their job description. The notion that they set rules for people that they have no intention of following themselves. And that's not just an issue of cleaners not reporting what they've seen. That is actually an issue with the people who hold power in that situation. 
that bit of how they treat, I mean, I think it probably is the most disgusting part of the report is how they treat the lower paid staff in, in Downing Street. And it's also the part of Boris Johnson's intervention that we just showed you there in the House of Commons that I find most implausible. I mean, I already find it incredibly implausible that he's shocked and surprised that there were parties in Downing Street because he attended a bunch of them. And all the testimony is that he, he very much contributed to this culture. But from his background, I also find it very difficult to believe that he's shocked and appalled that people could expect cleaners to, to clean up after their wine stains on the floor or be disrespectful towards security guards. Because we've got to remember, Boris Johnson was famously a member of the Bullingdon Club. Now, this is a drinking club at Oxford University, where the whole raison d'etre of it is you go to places such as restaurants, you know, where the people working there are of a lower class than you. You're the most privileged people in the land. You've mainly come from Eton. And what do you do? You trash that restaurant and then you throw cash at them. But the whole point of it is to demonstrate that people who are less privileged than you should clean up after you. That, that's the joke, right? And the joke is you can get away with it because you can throw cash at them. Now, I imagine that in Downing Street, there was no cash being thrown. You've got a similar class dynamic there. You've got a dynamic where you've got people who have probably been to Oxbridge or very fancy universities who are reasonably well paid, who are causing a mess, making people lower paid than them, clean up for them. Like you say, oh, these are cleaners. Their job isn't to clean up red wine spilt around photocopiers because there was an illegal party during lockdown. The custodian's job is not to tell people to stop breaking the law. It's not their job to say, oh, you, you, you really shouldn't be having a party because it's against the rules. That's not their job. Their job is to protect the security of, of Downing Street. It's supposed to be from people, from outsiders. It's not to be to police the people inside, of, inside there. So what you are doing is you're demanding people on lower pay than yourselves do jobs which are beyond their remit, beyond what they are paid to do, because you can't be bothered to have any responsibility for your, for your own actions. I mean, it's Boris Johnson through and through. Let's go to some responses. This was Keir Starmer's response in Parliament to Boris Johnson. That report lays bare the rot that under this Prime Minister has spread in number 10. Yep, yep. And it provides definitive proof of how those within the building treated the sacrifices of the British people with utter contempt. Yes. When the dust settles and the anger subsides, this report will stand as a monument to the hubris and the arrogance of a government that believed it was one rule for them and another rule for everyone else. The details are stark. Five months ago, the Prime Minister told this House all guidance was completely followed in number 10. Yet we now know he attended events on the 17th of December. At least one of those attending has received a fine for it, deeming it illegal. We know that on the 18th of December, an event was held in which staff drank excessively which others in the building described as a party, and that cleaners were left to mop up the red wine the next day. On the 20th of May, as a COVID press conference was taking place, one of his senior officials was told, be mindful, cameras are leaving, don't walk about waving bottles. It is now impossible to defend the Prime Minister's words to this House. This is about trust, yeah, yeah. because during that May 20 press conference, the British public were told normal life as we know it is a long way off, but that wasn't the case in number 10. Even now, after 126 fines, they think it's everyone else's fault but theirs. They expect others to take the blame whilst they cling on. They pretend that the Prime Minister has somehow been exonerated, as if the fact that he only broke the law once is worthy of praise. The truth is, they set the bar for his conduct lower than a snake's belly. And now they expect the rest of us to congratulate him as he stumbles over it. Uh, as Boris Johnson stumbling over a bar which is lower than a snake's belly. He doesn't really have a way with words. I do have to say, he, he did pick out the most relevant parts of the report, though. Um, I suppose that's the, the lawyer in him, if not the poet. Um, after facing MPs, Johnson had to then face the press. This was a question from the BBC. Prime Minister, address our viewer today who hears all of this and questions your character, your judgments, your integrity, and your willingness to tell the unvarnished truth. Bluntly, talk to our viewer, convince our viewer that you're not, you're not tempted 
or willing to lie to get out of a tight spot? Uh, no, I, I thank you very much, Chris, and I hope that uh, the imaginary view, I mean, it's not an imaginary view, I hope we've got several viewers uh, right now. Uh, I, I just say to, the, to, to that uh, person, look, uh, I've tried to explain uh, as clearly as I can uh, what happened, uh, why I said what I said uh, to the House of, of Commons, uh, the event for which I uh, have been found to be at, at fault. I, I've tried to, to explain the event in the, in, in the Cabinet Room and uh, on, on July 19, 2020, um, where I was basically standing at my desk for a, uh, for a brief period, surrounded by uh, some, other, some other colleagues. And then I've tried to explain the context of uh, why I was at, uh, at other events where I was saying a farewell to, to valued colleagues. And I just, I know that people uh, will think uh, it was, some people will think it was wrong uh, even to do that. I have to say, I respectfully disagree. I think it was right. When, when people are working very hard uh, for very long hours, uh, when they're giving up a huge amount to, uh, to serve their country, uh, and, they're, and they're moving on to some other uh, part of government, I think it is right to, to thank them or, or, or leaving government service altogether. I think it is right to, to, to thank them. And uh, I repeat what I, what I said in the, uh, in the Commons uh, earlier on. Um, you know, uh, I believe that they were, were work events. Uh, it's, they were part of my job. And um, uh, that, that view appears to be substantiated by the, uh, the fact that I wasn't fined uh, for those events. Uh, for the rest, I just want to say, you know, I, I appreciate that things didn't go in the way that I would, want, uh, would have wanted. They, the events proceeded afterwards in uh, the way that uh, I certainly wouldn't have uh, wanted to see. What happened with the uh, custodians was plainly, uh, and, and the cleaners was plainly, utterly unacceptable. And I, I, you know, I apologize for, for that as, uh, as I've apologized uh, to them personally. Again, what proceeded after my involvement was very unfortunate, nothing to do with me. Um, this is what he says is taking responsibility. And that line, you know, habit, attending a leaving do for valued colleagues when they leave is just what any good boss would do. And I find it really offensive because it's, it, it reminds me of another thing Boris Johnson stood up and said in a similar situation, which was after Dominic Cummings took that obviously lockdown rule-breaking drive to Durham. And when Boris Johnson came out and said, no, Dominic Cummings doesn't have to resign, he hasn't done anything wrong, what he said was, this is what any good father would do. And you can, you know, everyone else watching this thinking, well, I'm a father and I was told that I, I'm not allowed to do these things. I was following the rules. I was trying to save lives. Now you're calling me a schmuck because I followed the rules to the letter. And it's the same thing here. If you didn't attend a leaving party for one of your colleagues or for one of your employees because you thought that would be against the rules and therefore you looked at those posters which said if you bend the rules, you're going to kill someone. <laughs> if you followed those rules, you're a schmuck. You're not a good leader. You failed as a good boss because you followed, well, I'm not even going to say what you thought the rules. You, you followed the actual rules. Boris Johnson followed what he thought were the rules, which weren't the rules. I do think it is quite offensive because you're essentially saying if you followed the rules, not only should you feel silly, you should almost feel guilty because you've failed as a boss, just like, you know, when it, when it was Dominic Cummings, it says you, you failed as a, as a father. The line does seem to have gone down quite badly. Um, Andrew Neil tweeted after that PM Johnson defends alcohol fuel downing street leaving parties and his leadership duty to attend them. It's a new line and new nonsense. I left the BBC after 25 years during lockdown. There was never any question of a leaving party. We all knew it would be against the rules. Do let us know in the comments, did you leave a job during one of the lockdowns and did you have a leaving party? If you did, you can do it anonymously. If you didn't, feel free to use your real name. I'm, I'm sure you didn't though, because, you know, as we've been saying, Boris Johnson, clearly what he did was not within the letter or the spirit of, of the rules. Dahlia, what do you make of, of that excuse? I think we're going to hear it a lot over the next few days. Of course, it, it's completely laughable. Like if you want to thank someone who's moving on, I don't know, send them an email or like if you want to be super personal about it, give them a call. Like it's not, it's not hard. You know, people literally, we're talking about, oh, someone, you know, left their job and is a good uh, leader. I felt that I should go and, and basically be part of a leaving party with them. Well, first of all, being a good leader is following the rules that you set. Uh, being a good leader is setting an example. 
to those who are under your leadership. It's not to literally be a hypocrite and to set a precedent of behavior within government that basically the rules are for the little people and we get to do whatever we like. And also, okay, your mate was leaving work or your colleague was leaving work. People miss the birth of their children, like their children. People miss the birth of their grandchildren, of their nieces, of their nephews. People miss funerals, their loved ones. So it's really not sticking as an excuse. And not to mention that key workers who couldn't work from home. And so, you know, a lot has been made by Boris Johnson of, you know, these are all people that work together. And so they were in a bubble. Well, key workers that had to to go to work couldn't even eat their lunch together. They had to go into their, if they were a a GP or a a doctor, they had to go into their hospital rooms. Uh, If they worked in an office, they had to eat in their cubicle or eat in their office. So there is just no world in which at the time, if any member of the public had gathered in unmasked indoors in order to celebrate someone leaving their job or to celebrate a colleague leaving their job, that they wouldn't have been fined and punished for it. And Boris Johnson at the time would have come out all guns blazing in support of that. He wouldn't have accepted an excuse like, oh, I just felt like it was, you know, the honorable thing to do. And basically, I just wanted to attend it. So I did, which is actually the truth here. But again, it goes back to this point that for Johnson and his colleagues, this idea that the public would ever even find out about this was almost unimaginable to the point that he didn't even feel the need to cover their tracks. And that tells us so much about the kind of institutional protection that the government has come to expect. And that I say that not only with respect to this government, but also to governments past. We know that this is a culture that has existed throughout history now. But I also think that it it made me think as well, because obviously, as you sort of said earlier, the report doesn't tell us any kind of concrete facts that we didn't already necessarily know. What the report has told us is the attitude and the tone with which those things were carried out. And it's the utter confidence and the utter comfort to the extent that they can literally joke about how they're not going to get caught. That's what really struck me. And that's what we found out in this report. It reminds me of um, when you cast, if you cast your mind back to that Allegra Stratton press conference where she was laughing with members of the press about a wine and cheese event. The same Allegra Stratton who admonished and publicly humiliated a young single mum for living in a council flat instead of living with her, with her mum. That double standard and that sense of living in an alternate reality of living in the comfort of your own power is the logic that is on display every single day under this government. And the consequences of it are the consequences that we've seen in the Sue Gray report. But the consequences of it are also the way that they have conducted themselves throughout the pandemic, the contempt for public health, the contempt for the experts that has actually had a death toll in this country. And so we need to look at both what we found out in terms of the attitude and the the culture with which this government conducts themselves, but also see this as one piece in a broader puzzle that can have much more dire and at some points tragic consequences for, for everyday people. It is incredibly infuriating. I want to show you the one part of the report that I think Boris Johnson might not mind you seeing. And these are the pictures of his birthday bash. So this is what Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak got fined for. Um, so it clearly was, you know, the, the police have decided it was against the rules. You can see Boris Johnson there and Simon Case, who was the, the top civil servant. Everyone else is, is blurred out. And then you'll see Rishi Sunak in a moment as well. And, and the reason I say, I, I think maybe he won't mind you seeing this is because what it doesn't reveal that he broke the rules because we already know he broke the rules. This was the one thing he got fined for by the Metropolitan Police, which I find completely bizarre because looking at this report and from all the reporting, there are plenty other worse things that he partook in. But this is not the kind of image that I think would bring down a prime minister because this party looks really shit. You know, it's quite difficult to begrudge someone who on their birthday has, you know, like a bunch of Tesco meal deal sandwiches piled up in a massive jug of orange juice. I think there was some booze there as well. But I mean, it did not look like, oh man, they were really living it up in there. Dahlia, am I being too forgiving of him for that picture? I'm almost feeling a bit sympathetic looking at that one. (laughs) It is a pathetic image, but I feel that about most pictures of Boris Johnson that I see. But for me, the fact that there are even photos, I'm just like how it shows me how assured they were in their own power. Like if you're going to do something like this, 
at least make sure it's not traceable. At least don't be sending emails where the title of the event is wine and cheese party. But also, I think there's another thing here, which is the damage that has been done is something that can't just be shown in or like portrayed in photographs. The damage that has been done is in the public's ability to trust public health messaging and to trust these kinds of messaging in times of crisis. And because I don't want to get like too doomsday about it, but we are likely entering an era which will be marked by many public health crises, particularly the the knock-on effects of climate breakdown will not only likely intensify and trigger epidemics and possibly pandemics, but will also have other knock-on public health impacts. And they might not be at the scale that COVID-19 was, but they will still require some kind of cooperative, organized effort in order to combat. And as, you know, as we saw with COVID-19, in these kinds of moments, it is incredibly important that we have a collective commitment to a particular set of measures and that people trust that they are part of a broader effort that is going to work because we are all putting in our bit. We are all doing our bit. And that trust that we are on the same page and that everyone is doing what they can and that people are being asked to do things for honest reasons, that trust has been compromised, not only by what this government has has actually done, but by the intensity and the doggedness with which the government has lied about it and continues to lie in the aftermath. And so that kind of damage, it can't be expressed in a single photograph, but the consequences of it, because I don't think the public are going to have a short memory on this. The consequences of that are consequences that we will have to contend with uh, long after the wonderful day when Boris Johnson is no longer our prime minister. We have got more coming on the Sue Gray report. But first, as you may know, we at Navarra Media are currently running a fundraiser and we're hoping to grow our supporter base to 10,000 people. As part of that, we've made a video where you can meet the Navarra Media team. Here's a peek at that. Why Navarra? Because if you want to work in a media company with integrity in 21st century Britain, there aren't many options. At Navara, I'm really keen to carry on doing the work that I already have been, amplifying the voice of underrepresented people, making sure that those demographics who usually find their stories told for them are able to do it themselves. Navara is one of the few companies that recognized me and the things I wanted to do and said, we're gonna give you the space to do them. You've got to build the media that you want to see in the world. And unfortunately, the media landscape is controlled by like four right-wing Tory voting families in the UK. So if you want something different, you're gonna to have to find a way to fund it. We have worked tooth and nail to find the most ethical way to do that. That's why we don't have all these big ad partnerships. We don't have oligarch funding. All we have is an audience of people who believe in what we do. My point is though, if you're on the left and you're really angry about how things are, or just a progressive, I would implore you to fund new media because without that, we're going nowhere. We're running to stand still. At Navara, I don't feel boxed in. I'm across editorial, video and audio. And knowing that I'm doing so with the backing of our regular supporters rather than a billionaire funder means that I feel I can report the truth, the whole truth, and not just the one that the people with the deep pockets might want to hear. If you want to support us, that link is navaramedia.com slash support. And we're really, really keen to get our, our donor base up from 6,000, which it was at the start of this this fundraiser up to 10,000. We've massively expanded our reach and our audience over recent months, and we want to get our supporter base up there as well so we can continue to grow. Dahlia, um, I don't think I've had you on since the fundraiser started, so I, I, I'm putting you on the spot. Why should people go to that link and consider supporting Navara? Because good journalism takes a lot of resources, and we've already shown at Navara that we can do really in-depth, and incisive and interesting different media on a really, really small budget when you put it in the grand scheme of things, when you think about the kind of money that is behind something like talk TV, you know, millions and millions, we've got a fraction of that. And yet we've managed to put out such unique and important journalism. 
And in order to do that better, in order to do better quality, in order to go more in depth, in order to build a more rigorous picture of modern Britain, we need the resources in order to do that. And I think that we've showed that we can do so much on so little. And so whatever you give, um, you know, we're going to stretch it out as far as it can possibly um, go. So I'm so excited to see what we're going to do uh, as we level up once again into that kind of next stratosphere of, of media and content production. That was incredibly well put. And if you want to hear more of Dahlia talking about alternative media, its relationship to the mainstream media, um, there's going to be a Twitter space tomorrow at 7.30pm. Dahlia will be involved. Many other people will. Um, if you want to check that out, head to twitter.com slash Media at 7.30pm. Sure to be super insightful. I know there's actually lots of interesting guests turning up to that. Let's go to our next story. At the center of the Sue Gray report, there's a big gaping hole. It relates to an alleged party on the 13th of November 2020 in Johnson's Downing Street flat on the night of the departure of Dominic Cummings. According to reports of the event, it was organized by Carrie Johnson, who was celebrating Cummings being pushed out of his job. The two had been enemies for a while. And witnesses report Abba's The Winner Takes It All was blaring through the corridors of 10 Downing Street. Not particularly subtle, and Prosecco is reported to have flowed. Boris Johnson, crucially, was also in attendance with his wife and multiple advisors. In short, it has all the hallmarks of a rule-breaking party at a time when indoor socialising was banned and should therefore have been a prime target of Gray's investigation. Yet this is all her report had to say about it. Following the announcement of the departure of Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane, a meeting was held in the number 10 flat from sometime after six to discuss the handling of their departure. Five special advisors attended. The Prime Minister joined them at about 8pm. Food and alcohol were available. The discussion carried on later into the evening with attendees leaving at various points. Now, compared to Sue Gray's account of other events, this is incredibly brief. There is also no mention of Carrie Johnson, even though she was reported to be the party's instigator or the event's instigator. And there is no mention of whether the winner takes it all was blasted at a volume that could be heard throughout Downing Street. Now, obviously, the point of that song is it, it showed that this was Carrie Johnson celebrating a nemesis leaving, right? A celebration party. Now, explaining this lack of detail, Sue Gray says, The information collected on this gathering is limited as the process of obtaining evidence had only just been commenced when the Metropolitan Police announced their own investigations, which included events on the 13th of November 2020. At this point, I stopped my investigation, given the need to avoid any prejudice to the police investigation. Following the Metropolitan Police announcement on the 19th of May 2022, I considered whether or not to conduct any further investigation into this event, but concluded it was not appropriate or proportionate to do so. So this is a little odd. Unlike with the rest of the party, Sue Gray didn't even bother investigating the event. She says it wouldn't have been appropriate or proportionate to do so after the police published, well, they didn't really publish their investigation because they didn't publish anything, but after the police announced that their investigations had ended. But it, it, it's not explained why. I presume probably what she says, well, if the police didn't think anything went wrong, then it's not for me to investigate that. But she has investigated lots of events where people have done things wrong, where the police didn't find them. And you, know, you don't have to be a tisky sour viewer to not have much faith in the Metropolitan Police when it comes to this particular investigation. They haven't explained at all, I was about to say in any detail, but they haven't explained at all why they did not consider that party to have broken rules. The absence of details about this party has been noted by many. And in the debate following Sue Gray's publication, Catherine West asked this. The Prime Minister said that on the 13th of November 2020, the ABBA party he attended briefly. His defence was a job interview. Can he confirm he was only in his flat and he met Henry Newman to discuss a job? And can he confirm what the other special advisers were doing? Were they part of the job interview as well? So what West was referring to there is a story that came out at the end of April. And back then, the Times reported this. Boris Johnson has claimed that he did not break the law at the ABBA party that was held in his flat because he was interviewing a close friend of his wife about a potential job at number 10. 
It is said that the Prime Minister invited Henry Newman, then an advisor to Michael Gove, to join him in number 11, in the number 11 flat where he lives with his wife, Carrie Johnson, and two children. Now, that claim has been reported as the reason as to why the Met didn't let Johnson off. Again, that excuse doesn't give any account of why ABBA would be blaring loudly. That doesn't normally happen at a job interview or why Prosecco would be flowing. Again, unusual for a job interview. No account has been forthcoming from Boris Johnson to answer that question. And as we've said, not from Sue Gray. Let's see what Boris Johnson said specifically to that question we just showed you from Catherine West. Uh, Mr. Speaker, uh, that uh, evening was uh, extensively investigated, uh, to the best of my knowledge, and I don't, I, I, and I, I don't believe I can improve on what Sue Gray has had to say. I have some ambition. You can't improve on what Sue Gray had to say. She didn't even bother investigating this event. You're supposed to be a journalist. So someone's written down, I don't know anything about this event, but to be honest, I didn't investigate it because it didn't seem appropriate. And then he says, oh, look at the Sue Gray report. I think she's done, she's done a, as good an investigation anyone could do into this, so I will not add to it. This is an unanswered question. One would presume he has more to say than that. He should have more to say than that. And he was asked again about it. So later on in Johnson's press conference, the Mirror's Pippa Krarar went in with a forensic question of her own. Cameron, so you say that Sue Gray, that no um, individual gathering was swept under the carpet by Sue Gray, but there was one very striking omission, which was the gathering in your flat on November 13th, 2020, which she started investigating mm. and then says in her report that she paused when the police started looking right. at it and then concluded after the police closed the investigation that she wasn't going to carry on that investigation. So in the absence of any other explanation, what were you, your wife, and five aides doing for several hours with alcohol and snacks in your flat that evening? Yeah. Specifically, did you or any of your senior political team see her report before this morning and either have any role in editing it or requesting the removal of any facts about gatherings and dining no, so so um the first i saw the the report and uh read it in its in entirety uh was was at uh and to the to the best of my knowledge the first of any of my team uh saw it was at uh uh we, we got it at 10 o'clock i think shortly after 10 o'clock uh this morning that's an interesting answer. He's careful to say that the first time he read the report in its entirety was this morning. It doesn't preclude him having read parts of it. And we do know that he called a meeting with Sue Gray and encouraged her not to publish it. He said, well, given the police investigation has happened, why don't you just not publish it? She obviously did. But we don't know if there was any influence um, which was applied to encourage Sue Gray to decide that it would not be proportionate or appropriate to investigate this particular event. It goes about saying Boris Johnson didn't give any details. He didn't explain why ABBA would have been playing. He didn't explain it and he didn't deny it. That's also important. If he stood up there and said that didn't happen, that would have been notable. But no, he, he prefers just not to comment. And it's not just us who think this looks a little bit like a cover-up. You probably won't be surprised that Dominic Cummings has been fairly noisy today on Twitter. He has said, So, Sue Gray inquiry into ABBA party stopped because police starting. Cops don't investigate. Sue Gray says disproportionate to investigate now. None of those who saw or heard the party were interviewed. And then he says, Hashtag how bad cover-ups work. Hashtag crime week. And then a meme, move along. Nothing to see here. An interesting sort of bit of new information there. Um, Cummings is claiming that none of the witnesses to the Ababash were even interviewed. Dahlia, does this smell a little bit fishy to you? God, Regina Cummings strikes again with his boomer <laughs> memes. Um, I mean, it, it's certainly it's certainly an odd uh, an odd omission because the Gray report and an investigation by the Met Police they're not the same thing. They're not trying to find out the same things. The police are supposed to try to find out. And obviously there are questions about how good a job they did of this, but they are meant to try to find out if there are things that can be prosecuted as criminal acts. Whereas the Sue Gray report is about investigating whether or not activities took place that are not appropriate or that were not appropriate uh, for a government to undertake in the middle of a pandemic. That might include some criminal acts, but it's not just limited to that. So it can mean a bunch of other things. And so these are still things that the public absolutely have a right to know, given the crisis of confidence that now exists in the government. 
And it was absolutely within the remit of Sue Gray to investigate, and she should have investigated them. The omission is is a curious one, especially when you not only consider the lack of trust, let's at least to put it nicely, in uh, the Met Police's integrity in in reporting and in investigating on this. You know, the fact that they seem very cagey about even investigating, um, a caginess that they, I wish they showed more of that caginess when they were deciding to strip search girls at school. But also the fact that the Sue Gray report took so long to, to come out. It suggests that what we're seeing here is not the full picture, that it is a pale imitation of the full picture, one that has gone through, if not an extensive process of editing, um, has at least gone through a process of negotiation and bargaining about what exactly the report covers. Obviously, that's all speculation. We don't actually know what has happened behind closed doors. But even that very precise use of language that Boris Johnson used, where he said, you know, I didn't, re- as you mentioned, I didn't read the report in its entirety until 10 a.m. on whatever day. As you said, that not only doesn't preclude the fact that he might have read part, but it also doesn't preclude the idea that his team or he himself did not attempt to or and let alone successfully attempt to influence the remit and the depth of that report. So, yeah, between all of those different factors, it certainly doesn't doesn't give confidence in the process as a whole. It's important to know. I mean, the report is incredibly damning of what happened in, in, in Downing Street. But compared to some of the other reportage we've seen, you know, Boris Johnson isn't mentioned that much, right? You know, compared to what we've seen from sort of what, what, what sources have told newspapers, from clips in, in documentaries, he personally gets off a little bit lightly. And it does seem notable that this event, which she didn't bother investigating, was the one that people thought would be the most personally incriminating for Boris Johnson. Not necessarily the worst thing that happened in Downing Street, but the one which would have clearly been an example of rule-breaking specifically by Boris Johnson and his wife in his flat. And that was the one she didn't, you know, she was just like, well, it would be a bit inappropriate for me to investigate this one, wouldn't it? Why? You need to explain that. Obviously, she's a civil servant, so she's not going to be giving interviews. It's going to be difficult to grill her on that question. As BBC political editor Laura Koonsberg has been pretty kind to Boris Johnson, yet her first documentary since leaving the job hasn't pulled many punches. She has put out an hour-long episode of Panorama about Partygate, and it features interviews with three whistleblowers working in number 10. Two of those whistleblowers were fined for attending Downing Street parties. They went through some pretty shocking details about staff's behaviour during lockdown, including weekly wine time Fridays. So when you and your colleagues in government saw Boris Johnson say none of the rules had been broken? We were watching it all live and we just sort of looked at each other in disbelief like, why? Why is he denying this? When we've been with him this entire time, we knew that the rules had been broken. We knew these parties happened. I mean, it is quite clear that he lied to Parliament. They were every week. The event invites for Friday press office drinks were just nailed into the diary. There were actually invites. There was a weekly regular invite to press office drinks on Friday nights. Yes, wine time Fridays. Invites that were in everyone's calendar for every Friday at 4pm. At four o'clock in the afternoon was wine time. Yes. Now, I'm not sure there are many workplaces where people systematically get out bottles of wine at 4pm on a Friday, let alone during a lockdown when socialising was banned, and definitely not when you work in the place where those rules were set. The whistleblower is also worth saying, very clear, that Boris Johnson knew about this behaviour. We saw it as our own bubble. Everything just continued as normal. Social distancing didn't happen. You know, we didn't wear face masks. It wasn't like the outside world. It just continued as it always had done. And we would no extra rules in place or anything like that. So to be really clear about this, you and your colleagues felt that you had essentially permission from Boris Johnson to have these events. That's what you're saying? Yeah. Because he was there. He may have just been popping through on the way to his flat because that's what would happen. 
you know, he wasn't there saying this shouldn't be happening. He wasn't saying, can everyone break up and go home? Can everyone socially distance? Can everyone put masks on? No, he wasn't telling anybody that. He was grabbing a glass for himself. His principal private secretary himself was organising. His staff were organising parties. Of course, we already knew that Boris Johnson attended lockdown parties and that his most senior staff organised them. But the whistleblowers certainly added some colour. What was it sometimes like the morning after? A mess. There were bottles, empties, rubbish, in the bin but overflowing. Or indeed sometimes left on the table. You would go into work in the morning in 10 Downing Street and find empty bottles littered around the place. Yep. Again, that's pretty unusual for any workplace at any time. It's incredibly unusual that any workplace in the middle of a lockdown, you've got booze strewn around everywhere when you come in in the morning. And it's almost surreal in a workplace that was writing those rules that the rest of us had to follow. We cannot repeat this enough. And all of this, I suppose, is explained potentially by the fact that lockdown seemed like it was all quite abstract for the Prime Minister. He's a freedom-loving conservative, I mean, at his core. And I think that suddenly became something he had to keep in check. There's probably a sense of disbelieving for himself. The majority of people need to follow these rules, and that's the right message to send. But I think it stopped short of him almost seeing himself as part of that majority. And within the building and his general interactions, it felt like business as usual. Can you imagine Boris Johnson not thinking of himself as part of the majority? It's shocking. I'm shocked. Stunned. It's relevant, not just you know, because it's disgusting, but it is relevant when it comes to policy. Because while Boris Johnson was enforcing the most exceptional and consequential policy package in living memory, he wasn't living by those rules and he just didn't seem to be particularly aware of them. Now, as you know, we were pretty much in favour of, of very stringent social distancing measures before there was a vaccine. I think they were necessary. But there were also, I think, probably, you know, parts of those rules. We talked about it at the time, which were somewhat unreasonable. There was always this priority given to people going to workplaces, and it was completely disregarded that people might also need to socialise. If you need to go to work, go to work. But if you need to see someone because you might feel a bit sad, or, you know, socialising is what gives your life meaning, you can't do that. Now, we always said that distinction was probably because the government valued economic interests and valued profit over people's mental health. It could also have had something to do with the fact that Boris Johnson didn't see that there was a lack of understanding for people who needed to socialise because he was doing it anyway. And everyone he was surrounded with were doing it anyway. So he, he didn't understand the loneliness that lockdown imposed, however necessary the overall policy was, because it was completely alien to him. This was just a rule that you know his advisors had written down, he'd signed off, and he didn't really want to think about that much because maybe it made him a little bit uncomfortable. You know, That's not how laws should be written up, especially when they are as consequential and as invasive as, as lockdown was. And obviously, you know, invasive policies can be necessary, but they should be taken seriously. And they're only taken seriously if they're followed by the people writing them. We're going to show you one more clip from that documentary, which was perhaps the most disgusting. Um, this is what happened when a custodian, so that's the name of a number 10 security guard, tried to stop a lockdown party in full flow. I remember when a custodian tried to stop it all and he was just shaking his head in this party, being like, this shouldn't be happening. People laughed at him. People made fun of him because he was so worked up that this party was happening and it shouldn't be happening. What does it take, though, for you to be sitting here and saying that as an employee of the government? Why are you speaking out? Look, I believe in transparency. I think the public should know what's been going on. Dahlia, can I get your, your comments on those clips we've just shown? A few things sort of really jump out at me. Uh, the first one is, so, again, something that we always knew, but to kind of hear it coming from someone who was, is in the eye of it really confirms some of your worst suspicions, which is this idea that the COVID policies, and I would actually say policy as a whole, policies in general uh, for, for the Conservative government are abstract. They see themselves as part of a bubble. And I think that was the word that that person used, the interviewee used, that 
as part of a bubble where the the pain and the restriction and the the pressure of the outside world doesn't exist and that is the continuing theme throughout this government it's the case for covid but also when we see some of the most cruel policies enacted by this government the thing that comes to mind is when the government refused to to give people 20 quid a week more in universal credit in order to help the pandemic in to order to help with the pandemic in case someone had the audacity to enjoy that 20 quid a little bit too much you know that kind of attitude of there is no bottom to the cruelty that everyone else has to experience outside of parliament and outside of government because they are so protected from that it really adds up to them the policies that they enact the things that they write down are abstract to them because for them and the people that they love the people that they consider part of their community policies like austerity cuts things like the nationality and borders bill these are not things that are going to affect them they are abstract to them and so that kind of ability to believe that you live in a parallel universe when you have political and financial power really came through to me uh, in the description of the events that were laid out in that documentary but another thing that i really think about here is obviously you know this documentary as a whole is really damning for johnson and it's somewhat interesting to see laura coonsberg coming out of the coming out with this given that she has been so soft on this government uh, in general and i just i just find it incredibly hard to believe that Laura Koonsberg had no idea that these parties were happening at the time or that rules were being systematically broken at the time. And I say that again to go back to the Allegra Stratton press conference where you had Allegra Stratton laughing with members of the press about these parties having taken place as if it was kind of an open secret. I find it really hard to believe that Laura Koonsberg or at least someone close to her or in her team, uh, someone as well networked as that, someone as embedded in that sort of class as she is, would have had no inkling about this. And so whilst it's all well and good that the press are giving the government a hard time now, I would love to see an investigation into the legacy media to find out which members of the press actually knew about this and made the active decision to not make it a story at the time when it should have been front pages of every newspaper and holding the government to account there and then, not five months down the line when they've been able to craft their messaging and interfere with, with investigation processes in order to get themselves off the hook. So that's really what I'm thinking when I'm watching this documentary is I'm thinking, is this really the first that so many of these lobby journalists have heard of this? Um, and if not, why is this the first that we are hearing of it? The Allegra Stratton press conference was, it was a fake press conference. So I'm not sure there were actual members of the press there. Although actually a lot of our advice, a lot of the advice ended up to just go work for the press because it's the revolving door. So James Slack who was working in number 10, now works at The Sun. So there would have been a, you know, an enormous crossover. And I'm sure that loads of lobby journalists, you know, how many people have been fined? We don't know exactly how many people, but there are 126 fines that were given out. There are many, many, many people who were aware that this was going on. I find it incredibly, incredibly difficult to believe that these journalists didn't, right? What you would say about some of them is in their defense. You, you can't just say what you're suspicious of. You need to have some concrete proof if you're going to publish. But, you know... I imagine if you went through some of their WhatsApp messages, you could probably probably find the proof that you needed. But again, this is speculation. And we're going to end the show by talking less about the contents of the report, but what could be its consequences. Now, I mean, I think we've sort of explained how outrageous the contents are, and I think most of the public essentially agree with that. The people who matter in the very short term, so in the, in the immediate term, who can bring down Boris Johnson are only um, Conservative MPs. We're not going to spend too long talking about them, but just go through some developments today. So there was this afternoon a meeting of the 1922 committee. That's the committee of, of Tory backbench MPs. Of that, Tom Harwood tweeted, so reasonably well connected in the Conservative Party. Boris Johnson was so sorrowful at the 1922 committee that Tory MP Caroline Johnson told him to stop being so apologetic and get on with the job. Now, unless he came out with some completely different lines to those which he did publicly, I don't know what she was talking about because all, all, all I heard from Boris Johnson was, oh, I think it's unfortunate that other people did something bad when I wasn't there. That doesn't count as an apology to me. <laughs> I don't know what Caroline Johnson considers to be an apology. 
Tom Harwood also tweets, overall the PM struck a solemn tone, much like he did in Parliament and at the presser. We got things wrong, I got things wrong. Went on to say, um, need to be continuing to pound down the track. I don't think we can afford to spend a second longer on this. Well, obviously you don't think you can afford to spend a second longer on this. But the, the point is you're not going to be able to move on from this because it's incredibly outrageous. And also you lied so much, you know. I would say, you know, maybe if you just come clean straight away, then it would have been a smaller deal. But to be honest, I, I feel like what's what's gone on, this this was always going to... There's not much this government can do after this. Obviously, I, I want them to be introducing policies which, you know, help people, but that's not their plan anyway. And I can't see how he's going to win back the confidence of the people because now all policies are just read through this, this lens now. You know, when I was watching his statement in Parliament, I was just like, everyone, n- no one believes this shit, man. Everyone is calling bullshit. Tory leader Douglas Ross... I think he's come out with a statement which I think is even more pathetic than Boris Johnson's today. So, brave Douglas Ross, who's leader of the Scottish Tories and an MP and an MSP, has said, Boris Johnson should resign when the Ukraine war ends. Sadly, that war could be five or ten years in the making. You know, We're moving to a position of a war of attrition. You, you can't be stand up and be really brave and say, oh, I think Boris Johnson should resign when something happens potentially really far in the future, which most people expect Boris Johnson to be gone by then anyway. So ridiculous statement. An MP from Outer York, Julian Sturdy, um, has been a little bit more brave. You know, he's come out with something a bit more meaningful. Um, He posted this statement to social media. The Sue Gray report clearly shows that the Prime Minister has presided over a widespread culture of disregard for coronavirus regulations. Furthermore, questions are now being raised about whether the Prime Minister misled Parliament when asked about these events. Um, They're they're not now being raised. They were raised ages ago but whatever. While I thought it important to wait for the conclusions of the Metropolitan Police investigation and the publication of the Sugriye report, I am now unable to give the Prime Minister the benefit of the doubt and feel it is now in the public interest for him to resign. Someone get this man some newspaper subscriptions because he clearly you know, has, has not been reading enough. Every conclusion he came to there, he should have come to um, about four months ago. But talking about low bars, at least it was braver than Douglas Ross. Dahlia, thank you for joining me this evening. Thanks for having me, Michael. It has been a pleasure. Massive show this evening. Thank you all for joining us for it. We'll be back on Friday at 7pm. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.